You know, families are strange, aren't they? I think this is probably most clear in my life when I do a funeral. Because I, I guess every funeral that I've ever done, or at least it seems like every funeral I have ever done has always kind of had the same thing happen. One of the people in the funeral that I know, or one of the people in the, among the family of the funeral that I know, will call me aside. And they'll say, Pastor, you're going to see some people in my family today. And I just, I'm asking you not to judge us by them. That, that you're going to see some people that might show up and there might be some conflict and there might be. And, and I'm just going to, I'm just asking, don't judge us by them and preach extra hard to them if you would. You know, Eddie's just never been able to figure it out. He's just never been able to put things together. And my sister, her ex may or may not show up. And if she, she shows up, just wait for the fireworks, man. Uh, and then, you know, we've got that uncle coming down from New York, and we're just, you know, not really sure what to think about him. So, so preacher, there's going to be some people here, and I just, I'm just asking you, just don't really, you know, don't, don't look at all of our family like that. So our families have baggage, don't they? All of our families have baggage. And I think that's been a common experience with all the funerals that I've done, because for the most part, every family that I know is like that. Every family that I know is like that in some degree, in some way or another. And I know that many of you come this morning with a lot of baggage in your own families. Many of you come with a dad that you just never hear from. It's kind of just out of your life altogether. Wasn't there when you were growing up, still isn't there now. Many of you perhaps come with a mother whose expectations you just feel like you can never reach. And she's kind of always just discouraging you and discouraging you and discouraging you. Maybe you have a sibling, and it's like their life is always falling apart, and they're always blaming everybody else for it as though they're the victim. you got baggage in your family. And so this morning, what I want us to see is that all of us in Christ Jesus have been called to be a part of a greater family. We've been called to be a part of a bigger family, a family that goes deeper than even the blood running through our veins. And so the warning that I want to give to you is that don't bring all of the baggage with your earthly family and begin to project it on to this greater family. Don't bring all of the funeral baggage and the, the, the things that you call the preacher aside for to kind of prepare his heart and prepare him for. Don't, don't bring all of that and then project it on to this new spiritual family, this greater family. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. We're actually going to finish Matthew chapter 12 this morning, and beginning next week we'll go into Matthew 13, which is exciting because that's really when we begin to get into the parables of Jesus. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time kind of unpacking these parables and seeing what that looks like. But first we've got to bring chapter 12 to a close. So stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. So we're in Matthew chapter 12. We'll read verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to the end of chapter 12 in Jesus' ministry, we're coming to the end of a very extended discourse that has been taking place in the midst of Jesus' ministry. And when we lay chapter 11 of Matthew beside chapter 12 of Matthew, they're structured eerily similar, strikingly similarly. So what we see in both chapters is we see a lot of opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Matthew 10 had prepared us for that. As Jesus had told his disciples, he's sending them out as sheep among wolves, and that they are going to come against great persecution, that people are going to try to kill them. And the, the ones who perse- persevere until the end are the ones who will be saved. And so we've seen that play out a little bit in Matthew 11 and 12. As Matthew 11 and 12 have kind of unpacked, we've seen Jesus have to pronounce judgment. We've seen the Pharisees rise up in stern opposition, even going so far as to say, Matthew says that they are conspiring now how they might destroy him. But chapter 12 ends the same way that chapter 11 did. Remember how chapter 11 in Matthew ended? Chapter 11 ended by Jesus saying that the Lord, in the midst of all of the rejection in the culture, in the midst of the rejection in all of the generation, that the Lord, the Father, had revealed Christ to some little children. In other words, there were a lot of people that rejected Christ, but not everyone rejected Christ. There were some, Matthew 11 says, that came to Christ and found that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. They came to Christ and found rest. Now we come to the end of Matthew chapter 12 and the same thing has happened. The Pharisees have conspired to destroy Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. We have seen him have to rebuke uh, and, and pronounce judgment on people saying that they have committed an unforgivable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But we come to the end of chapter 12 and what does he say? He says, I have still developed a family. In the midst of such rejection, in the midst of such hardship, I have now a greater family. I have now a spiritual family. In other words, in the midst of all of the rejection, there were some who had called on him as Lord, who believed on him as the Christ and were following him faithfully as disciples. I think what we see here is God doing what God always does. God always gives his people a glimmer of light. God always gives his people in the midst of profound darkness in the culture, profound darkness in the society. God always gives his people a glimmer of light so that they might be able to see through it to him and press on and persevere. You know, I think for us, we look at our society, we look at our culture and we struggle, don't we? We look at our society, we look at our culture, we live, we look at the world in which we live, and we just wonder, man, there's so much darkness. So much darkness, there's so much pain, there's so much struggle, there's so much confusion, there's so much chaos. We live in a world that is undermining the definition of marriage. We live in a world in which our elections seem to feature evil versus evil. We live in a world in which our government says they're going to prey on the poor rather than to assist them. But brothers and sisters, in the midst of this darkness, there are still glimmers of light. 
there are still glimmers of light. And there are glimmers of light, pictures of the faithfulness of God, pictures of the working of God, of the sovereign power of God, of the sovereign goodness of God, even among this church family right now. You know, church family, we have people in this church that have recently come to faith over the last few years that everything in their family history takes them away from Christ. Everything in their family history takes them away from the church, takes them away from the gospel, takes them away from the word of God. And yet today, you know what they're doing? They're establishing a new family cycle. They're breaking what was old. They were breaking what is set for them. And they are establishing a new family cycle, a family cycle that will begin perhaps a trajectory of generations of gospel faithfulness in their families. Brothers, that's a glimmer of light in a dark world. God is still at work. God is still moving. God is still transforming. The gospel is still good news. The gospel is still divine. The gospel is still transforming men and women, boys and girls, teenagers from the inside out. The gospel is still taking hold of hearts and transforming them. I think about my brother Michael over here even. Michael, I was struck as you were talking. Because I remember when I had to baptize your big self a few years ago. You ever seen that before, huh? Some of y'all were here. I was praying the whole time, Lord, let me get this man out of the water. Baptize a past that says gospel and faithfulness. Coming home from a mission trip where he sowed the gospel into the hearts of children and had his heart turned upside down. That's glimmers of light in a dark world, brothers and sisters. God is not finished. God has not forsaken his people. God has not forsaken his church. He is still moving among us, working in us, working through the Spirit, filling us with the power of God. When Jesus said, I will not betray you, I will not forsake you, even to the end of the age, he meant it. He says, we look at the darkness around us, we are those that can see through it. We are those that can see through it. And we see through it through the light given to us in Christ Jesus and in the gospel. Now when we come to the particular passage that we're here uh, this morning, I think we see that Jesus is really teaching two groups of people. The first group of people is really the more obvious group of people. The disciples, right? That Jesus is sitting there and he's instructing his disciples and he's teaching them. And he's really teaching the disciples through inclusion. Through, he's teaching them about what it means to be included into the household of God. Included in the family of God. Included as a brother or as a, a sister of Christ Jesus himself. But I think there's a second group of people that Jesus is teaching here. And it's a bit more subtle. And it's a bit easier for us to run through it and, and miss it. And he's teaching them in a completely different way. I believe that not only is Jesus teaching his disciples here, but that Jesus is also teaching his biological family, his, his earthly family here. He is teaching Mary and his brothers. And he's not teaching them through inclusion as he did with the as he is with the disciples. He's teaching them rather through exclusion, by excluding them. You'll notice how Matthew says it. He says it very purposefully. The way the, the sentence is constructed is very purposeful when it says that uh, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Outside. They're, they're left on the outside. Now, at what point in our passage this morning does Jesus invite them in? He doesn't. 
He doesn't invite them in. Instead, he leaves his mother and his brothers excluded from the conversation, excluded from the teaching at hand, on the outside waiting for him to come to them. In Mark chapter 3, we have a parallel account of the same story. And Mark gives us a bit more context as to why Mary and the brothers were there that day. In Mark 3, verse 21, it says that they came because they believed that Jesus was out of his mind. In other words, in their family, Jesus seems to become the, be becoming the person that they apologize for at funerals, right? That Jesus is becoming that, that crazy uncle that's out in Capernaum somewhere ministering and doing things and, and causing a rise. And so they've come to kind of bring him back home and hopefully talk some sense into him. Hopefully be able to bring him back together and get his head on straight. And their motives, who knows what they are. Maybe they had heard the threats of the Pharisees and they feared for the life of Jesus. Perhaps they believed that Jesus was bringing great reproach and shame upon their family. And they were going to to get him and to bring him out of that. In, In their day, man, family and shame and honor, that was everything. As we still see in a lot of Eastern cultures particularly. So who knows exactly why it is that they were there that day, but we know that they came because they believed that Jesus was out of their mind, out of his mind. In other words, they did not believe that Jesus was entirely telling the truth. They did not believe that Jesus was being above board. They did not believe that Jesus was yet who he said that he was. Now we know that later they're converted. Later they commit to the causes of Christ. James is the leader of the church of Jerusalem. We know about all that Mary has done, but not here. And so Jesus leaves them on the outside. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. You're not automatically born into the family of God because you're born into the earth. If there has ever been a family on earth, if there has ever been a person on earth who should get into heaven because of what their last name is and what their family heritage is, it ought to be the mother and the brothers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If there has ever been someone who ought to come into the kingdom of God for the good things that they have done, should it not be Mary? And yet Jesus excludes them here from the conversation. You see, if we don't teach exclusion, if we don't allow people graciously, lovingly, gently to know that they are outside of the gospel, outside of the family of God, outside of a walk with Christ, then they will not know that they are wrong with God and out of place with God and that God has taken offense to them so that they will repent and turn to him. This is why not everyone is allowed into membership here, right? That you have to be a baptized believer. In other words, you have to have professed faith in Christ and then begin to manifest the fruits of faithfulness in your life to come into the membership of our church because it is intended to be a picture of the family of God. That if everybody was just automatically brought into membership, into the church, they would confuse that as to believing they're in the family of God and not in need of repentance, not in need of conversion, not in need of having their hearts surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Christ. It's the same exact reason that we don't invite everybody to come into the Lord's table in communion, right? That there, we, we say that you must be a baptized believer. Again, that you have professed faith in Christ and have brought your heart in obedience to him and begin to show fruits of obedience and fruits of faithfulness in your life so that those who are excluded might know that all is not well with them. 
so that those who are excluded, including our children, might want to be included and profess faith in Christ and be baptized into the church and into the family of God. But I think where pastorally this is most difficult for me is when I'm trying to counsel with a mom and a dad about their children. I guess over the last decade, something that I've picked up on and something that I have found is that a lot of the time a mom or a dad will know that their children are not committed to the Lord. They will know that there's never been a time in their child's life where they bowed their hearts and surrendered their lives and repented of their sin and placed their complete faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. They know that, but the pain is so unbearable to conceive. The, the, the pain is so, so unimaginable of what it would mean if their child was, 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 were to die without Christ that they can't even bring themselves to speak of it. And so often, I know that their hearts are well-intentioned. I know that their hearts are burdened. But often, I, I, when I'm counseling with a mom and a dad and a child and they're in the same room together, I will often hear the mom or the dad almost trying to make a case, even though they themselves know, trying to make a case that, well, you know, when they were at VBS one time or, you know, they were baptized that one time or, or you know, they, they really do, don't do a lot of bad things and they, they do good things too. And, and so they, they try in front of the child to kind of build up a case, to convincing themselves almost as like a, a self-coping mechanism to say that their children are saved. But mom and dad, we can't do that. We can't do that. Our children need to know that we know they are outside of the gospel. Our children need lovingly, kindly, gently shepherded toward a place where they can understand that they are excluded from the family of God and outside of the house of God and outside of the grace of God that they might bow their hearts and repent of their sin and come to Christ Jesus. Dad, a simple way that you can do this, I think, is when your family gathers around the table and do your very best to gather around the table at least a few times during the week. Ask a blessing and pray for each member of your household. And if you have a child, regardless of their age, that is outside of the gospel, pray before them and ask God that he would save that child. If your child goes to hell, let them have to jump over your prayers to get there. Let them hear it. You're not having to go to them day after day after day and say, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. Instead, let them hear you plead with God for their soul. Let them hear you plead with God for their forgiveness. Let them hear you plead with God for his mercy. Let them know that they have been excluded from the gospel at this point. That they might long to be part of that. Well, Jesus' response, and Jesus' response, we really see him respond in a way that great teachers do. You, you, you got to imagine that Jesus is a pretty intense teacher. Like, I consider myself to be a pretty intense teacher. I'm just an in, in, intense person in general. But you can imagine that, that Jesus is probably a pretty intense teacher. And so on this given day, you have an usher bring a note from the back. Excuse me, a blue dodge with the lights on in the parking lot. You have Jesus in the midst of his teaching point and the usher bringing forward a notice to go out and check the lights in the parking lot, right? You have, you have Jesus in the midst of his teaching point and all of a sudden they say, Hey, Jesus, mama's outside looking for you. Hey, Jesus, your brothers, they're here and they say they ain't going anywhere without you. Jesus, they're waiting on you. And what's amazing 
Jesus doesn't miss a lick, does he? Jesus, rather than giving in to the distraction, caving to the distraction, sees it as a teaching opportunity. And he seizes it. Without missing a beat, he looks to his disciples in a moment that I am convinced they remembered for the rest of their lives. And he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Jesus was not struggling from sudden onset amnesia. He knew who his mama was. He knew who his brothers were. Jesus was not unclear about what that was. Instead, he was looking at his disciples and he was saying, who is a part of my greater family? Who is a part of my spiritual family? Who has been adopted in to my father's household? And then he points to all of his disciples. He says, it is you. You are my mother. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. You are a part of my family. Can you imagine how that just took back the disciples? Now think about these guys. Man, things are not good in the group. Persecution has come as Jesus said it would come. Jesus had already told them, if you follow after me, you may not have a place to lay your head down at night. And that seems to be coming true. They're going to towns, and towns are escorting them to the city limits and saying, please don't come back here again. Then you add into that the imperfection of the, of the disciples. They're always blowing it. They're always messing up. They never give Jesus the credit that Jesus needs. They're always selling Jesus short, always doubting what's going on, always confused about what's happening. And so when Jesus looks at them, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain, in the midst of shame, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their struggle to follow after him faithfully, he looks into the midst of that and he says, you are my brothers. You are my brothers. You are in this with me. We are in this together. We are a part of a greater family. That, the, that your family used to be decided by the blood in your veins, but now your family will be determined by the blood on the cross. And the blood of the cross will cover all of your sin and all of your shame forever in perpetuity, eternally so. I'm convinced the disciples were never to forget that moment. That was a moment that would be etched and carved into their souls forever. You know, a lot of us bring a lot of skeletons from our closet, don't we? We bring a lot of shame. We bring a lot of sin. We bring a lot of confusion when it comes to what faithfulness in the gospel looks like. We bring a lot of unfaithfulness in our lives as far as what the gospel looks like. We, we don't really always understand Christ. We have unbelief creeping into our lives and all the different cracks that, is found, that are found there. But you know what Hebrews 2.11 says? That Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Wrap your brain around that for a second. That Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, whose holiness is powerful and potent enough to vaporize you in an instant, 
The one among whom all the angels are proclaiming his glory for eternity. He looks at you in your wickedness, in your shame, in your sinfulness. He says, I am not ashamed of you, my brother. I am not ashamed to call you my daughter. I am not ashamed to call you my family. I'm not apologizing to the preacher for you. Instead, I'm going to wash you clean, make you new, bring you into my house. See, Jesus thinks more highly of you than you could ever think of yourself. Because he thinks of you being in the house of God. As a member of his family, not by the blood in your veins, not by the good works of your life, but by the blood shed on the cross for you. Jesus isn't ashamed of you, my brothers and sisters. Let's keep thinking, let's keep unpacking what it means to be a part of the family of God for a second, though. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians. So you have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. The Lord has really used this passage to bring a lot of renewal in my own life this week. Or the book of Philippians, actually, this week. That's why I was studying this in my... A personal time with the Lord, and he just really has used this to encourage me. So what I want to read right now is I want us to read Philippians 3, verses 7 through 12 together. For whatever gain, this is Paul talking, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of, from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am made, already made perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has brought me in to his household. Christ Jesus, through his work on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, has made me his brother, has made me his sister, has made me his mother, has made me adopted into the household of God, sitting at the table of God forever. I am with him. And because Christ Jesus has made me his own, everything else I lose is nothing. Go ahead, rob me, beat me, stab me, shoot me. Kill me. What can you do to me? If you take me out of this world, I'm going to go be with Jesus at his household. If you rob me of everything that I own, I've got a greater treasure already stored up for me. It's already been saved for me. It's already been set apart for me. Christ Jesus made me his own. All you can do is either take me out and take me to Jesus or leave me here and let me build up his kingdom on earth. That's all you've got. So you've got no power over my life. I am totally secure. You know, we find that all of our, much of our security as people come from our families, don't they? That most of us are either secure or insecure, largely as a result of who our family was. 
want you to imagine with me for a second that you're homeless. You're homeless and you really have no way of knowing where you're going to get your next meal. You really have no way of knowing where you're going to get your, uh, your, your, where you're going to find your next shelter or, or how you're going to make it kind of from day to day. You literally are living moment by moment. You see a, a half-eaten Big Mac in the trash can, you, you go to get it and you end up having to fight somebody else that wants it to eat. Somebody along the way kind of gave you a broken down bicycle and it's your best possession and you take it with you everywhere that you go. And yet you find yourself always having to fight people for this broken down bicycle to keep it from being stolen from you. But I want you to imagine with me that one day Bill Gates shows up. And Bill Gates shows up and he says, I have been looking for you. I've been looking all over for you. I've been seeking you out. And the reason that I've been seeking you out is that I am going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my house. Now, from everything that I read, it's estimated that Bill Gates' current fortune is around $78 billion. Billion with a B. I read that, that he makes about $250 a minute. So if he dropped $250 on the ground and it took him four seconds to pick it up, it would cost him $1,000. Not worth his time. That Bill Gates lives in an estate that's 66,000 square feet, has 24 bathrooms and a heated driveway. A heated driveway. We're not talking about his tile in the bathroom. We're talking about his driveway. Now imagine that Bill takes you a formerly homeless child, and he takes you to the midst of his sprawling estate, and he points around. He says, look, take it all in, because I'm going to leave it all to you. I'm going to leave it all to you. And in the meantime, I'm going to make sure that all of your needs are met. I'm going to let you fellowship with me and enjoy a relationship with me as my son. I'm going to support you. I'm going to love you. I'm always going to be there for you. I'm going to give you everything you need. I'm going to give you things that you want. I'm going to bless you in a way that is inconceivable based on your history. Imagine who you now would be. Let me just say something. You're not fighting over half-eaten Big Macs anymore. You're not fighting over rusted out bicycles anymore. You know, wh what's a bicycle to Bill Gates? What's a Big Mac to Bill Gates? You got nothing to worry about. You are totally secured because of now you have been adopted into a new household. You've been now given a new identity. You are someone completely new with a completely different trajectory and a completely different inheritance. You are totally secure. Brothers and sisters, your position in the household of God is infinitely smaller, higher than that. The treasure of God, the inheritance which you will receive, cannot even be quantified. Not even with billions or trillions or gazillions. It cannot be quantified. And because of your future inheritance, you are already presently set free and secure. There is nothing that can be taken from you. Jesus has already said, if the Father provides for the birds, will he not provide for you? He's already said that I'm going to send the helper. He's going to take residence in you. And he's going to live there so that you can walk intimately with God. And God will be with you every second of every single day. 
He's already said, I'm going to give you all the things you need. Probably even a lot of the things that you want in this temporary fleeting life. But then you're going to step out across the threshold. You're going to go to the next life. And I'm going to pour my kindness over you. I'm going to pour my riches over you forever. What can the world do to us, brothers and sisters? What can the world do to us? What's it going to take away our house? we got a mansion waiting on us. What's it going to take away our money? Money burns faster than anything else. It's worthless. Paper. We're going to go to a place where they use gold for pavement. What are they going to take from us? Our well-being? We're just going to go to Christ faster. What, are they going to kill us? We're going to be with Jesus now. What, are they going to leave us? We're going to build up the kingdom of God while we're here. We are totally secure because of who our Father is. We are totally secure because Christ has made us His own, brought us into His family forever. I just want to just be transparent with you for a second and just be honest. I guess for the past year, I've struggled with something that I've never really struggled with in my life. And I, I believe the Lord is getting me to a place now where maybe I can testify to that a little bit more. But I've struggled with something that I never really struggled with. I've struggled a lot with anxiety. And that's a new thing. And I'm not real, real good about kind of voicing that and talking about that and, and being, being open about that. But I've, I've struggled a lot. And I even remember <coughs> the week before Sarah was born, kind of building up to that week, that I actually thought that maybe I had pneumonia because I had this pressure in my chest and I felt like I couldn't catch my breath good. And it was a struggle. And you know, and I, and I know all the things that I'm supposed to know. I know that those are forms of unbelief. And I, I know that, that those things are sinful. And I know that there's a, a lack of trust somewhere in my life. But I think the Lord has used this to teach me about my own weakness and my own human frailty in a way that I never, I never knew before. And I believe the Lord is renewing me now. And I believe the Lord is doing a great work in my life right now. But as I was reading this this week, as I, I was studying this this week, it became clear to me that God has given me a sermon to preach to my own frailty. God has given me a sermon to preach to my own anxiety. God has given me a sermon to preach to my own unbelief. God has given me a sermon to preach to my own shallow breaths. And it is this, I am a son of God. I am a child of God. My inheritance is totally secure. There is no uncertainty in tomorrow that can strip that from me. There is no struggle of today that can overcome that. I am his son. Christ has made me his own and he will not unmake me his own. And brothers and sisters, you are too. For all of you, for all of you who are in Christ Jesus, for all of you who have your struggles, who for all of you who have repented of your sin, you have a sermon to preach to the frailty of your heart. You have a sermon to preach to the unbelief that you find in your life. You are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are totally secured in his grip. Totally secure in what he has made you be. You have been bought not by the blood in your veins, not by the work in your life, but by the blood on his cross. So this morning what I want you to see 
is that your inheritance, your future inheritance, the inheritance awaiting you in glory, gives you total security right now. Right now in this temporary and fleeting world. Jesus closes out this passage. If you'll turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12. By asking the question, how can we know if we are in his family? How can we know if we have been brought into this greater family? How can we be certain of it? He says in verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I want you to notice something about the structure of that. He does not say this is the means by which it is obtained. He does not say that the way that you are adopted into my, into my family, the way you are, are brought in as my brother or my mother or my sister is not come and do the will of my father, do this law and this law. He has in his mind the word of God, this word and this word and this word, and then God seeing that will bring you into the family. Rather, what he is saying is that this will be the, the evidence of it. This will be the fruit of it. How do you know if you're in the family of God? Are you a functioning member of the family? Are you a functioning member of the family? Do you, does your life in any way re, uh, resemble the Father? Think about your life. Are you a functioning member in the household of God? Are, are you in your life showing the evidences and the fruits of godliness, the, the fruits in which the resemblance of, of Christ, the resemblance of the Father are being made clear in your life? A, a preacher from a previous generation named A.W. Tozer said this, A notable heresy, that is a notable false teaching, has come into being throughout evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we as humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. But salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scripture. That how do you know if you are a child of God? How do you know if you are a brother in Christ? How do you know you will live out the word of God? You will live according to the will of God. If you do not read your Bible, and you are not faithful to your church, and you do not share your faith, and you do not serve in ministry, and you do not devote yourself to prayer, and you do not give of your money, I have no idea how you can know, how you can believe, how you can think you are a child of God. You look nothing like him. Evaluate your life honestly, friends. Look clearly into that mirror this morning that is God's word. Are you his child or are you excluded on the outside looking in? I have some close friends that recently adopted, a couple of years ago, adopted um, a brother and a sister from Ukraine. Beautiful children. The little girl who's a little older than her, bro- her younger brother is, has uh, cerebral palsy. And so she's unable to walk. And so you can imagine... As these two beautiful children are sitting there together, wanting to stay together in a Ukrainian orphanage. That all the people there would assume that they are going to be the last ones to be adopted. Assume that the one who's got health issues and struggles and can't walk on her own and can't do a lot of other things on her own. They are going to assume that she is going to be the last one. They are going to be the last ones that are chosen. Until one day, 
when a man, a father, comes into the midst of that Ukrainian orphanage and says, she is mine. She will be my daughter. She will live in my house. She will, she will inherit my possessions. She will get all of the benefits of being my daughter. I will care for her. I will love her. I will nurture her. I will nourish her. I will bring her and I will bring him into my house to be my children. Brothers and sisters, that is the picture of your gospel adoption. That you were broken down and helpless in your sin. And the father, through the pursuit of his son, came and pointed to you and said, I want him. I want her to come into my family. And if you are, if you are included in this family, brothers and sisters, you are totally secure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.